Romans chapter 8 will be in verse 31 today. I want to speak to you this morning on what does the gospel mean to me. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, and who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father God, we're so thankful for this wonderful, wonderful passage. And I pray now as we wrap up our service by turning our attention to your word, speak to our hearts today. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to speak uh, Lord, uh, just exactly what you once said. Protect me from saying anything I ought not. May I boldly proclaim anything I should. And I pray, Lord, you give us all ears to hear today. I just pray for every Christian here. May we leave this place on shouting ground this morning. We're already there. I pray this would just cap it off. And I pray, Father, that uh, anybody here who's not a believer that doesn't know you as Savior would want it as a result of all that they've heard and all that they will hear today. Let nobody leave here lost. Let everybody leave here on shouting ground today, rejoicing in what we have in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finally come this morning to our final study in Romans chapter 8. And everybody says, Amen. That kind of hurts my feelings just a little bit. We have been in Romans chapter 8 for a while. I know that. Uh, But we're going to finish it up this morning. We have mentioned that this chapter is considered by many to be kind of a mountain peak, kind of a a, 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 just a a pinnacle of Scripture. And we found evidence to support that. At least I have. I have enjoyed as we've looked through this. John John Stott said this uh, in uh, his book, Men Made New. He said, anyone who has studied the Bible with care knows that there are times when we come to some soaring pinnacle of revelation and are left nearly breathless by the view. This is what happens when we come to this last great paragraph of Romans 8. Commentators have called these verses a hymn of assurance, a triumph song, the highest plateau in the whole of divine revelation. But these accolades are surely all too weak. This is a mountaintop paragraph. It is the Everest of the letter and thus the highest peak in the highest Himalayan range of Scripture. And so we come to Paul's climactic conclusion of all that he's been describing about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're anything like me, as we look through these, as we think about these words, you will be on shouting ground. Because I can't help but want to just rejoice when I think about these things. When we started on the chapter some weeks ago, we noticed it starts with, there is therefore now no condemnation. And now as we wrap up chapter 8, we're going to find that it ends with, there is no separation. 
And it's just a glorious truth. A poet said, no condemnation, blessed is the word, no separation forever with the Lord. By his blood he bought us, cleansed our every stain. With rapture now we'll praise him, the lamb for sinners slain. No condemnation, no separation. Well, you'll notice as we look down through here that this is a whole bunch of questions. Paul asked a whole lot of questions here. He said in verse number 31, who is against us? He said in verse number 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? He said in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? In verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And of course, the answer to every one of those questions is the same. Every one of those questions is answered, no one. No one. Nobody can be against us who are in Christ. Nobody can accuse the believer in Christ. Nobody can condemn the one who is his. And nobody and nothing, nowhere and no time can separate the Christian from the love of the Savior. One man said the apostle hurls those questions out into space as it were defiantly, triumphantly, challenging any creature in heaven or earth or hell to answer them or to deny the truth that is contained in them. But there is no answer. For nobody and nothing can harm the redeemed people of God. Well, I want us this morning to just examine a couple of those questions that Paul asks and see if they don't encourage us a little bit. Let's look at that first one in verse number 31. Who can be against us? Who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I want you to remember, you know, right off the the bat here, who Paul's writing to. Paul's writing to Christians. We need to remember that. Chapter 1, verse number 7, he said, uh, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. His audience is the saints, is the believers in Rome. And certainly the book of Romans can be read with great profit by any unbeliever. We use the Romans road all the time in leading people to Christ. And so I'm not saying that it's not for unbelievers. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, An unbeliever can read this book. They'll see their need. They'll see their lost state. They'll see their hopelessness apart from Christ. They'll see that all they need to do is call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Uh, All that is is good, and they can be justified by faith just like the rest of us. And so uh, there's profit there. But I want us to understand that Paul's target audience is the already saved. He's writing to believers like you and I who have trusted Christ already as Savior. And it's important because when we think about a statement such as the one we just saw here or this question, we need to interpret it in that light. If God is for us, who can be against us? The us is Christians. And so we could rephrase that and we would not be doing any harm whatsoever to the Scripture. We could say, Christians, if God is for us, who can be against us? We could say, if God is for us, Christians, who can be against us? So think about that. Any part of that question jump out at you? Any part of that question bless your soul? Any part of that question make you want to shout? And some of you probably are sitting there saying, well, all of it. It's a stinking good question. And it is. But there's four little words in there that jumped out at me as I was studying this that I couldn't help but notice. Those four little words. God is for us. Did you notice that in there? That's just just a wonderful truth. It's an amazing statement. I think we ought to repeat that over and over and over in our minds until it sinks in and we get the import of it. God is for us, Christians. God is for you, believer. In spite of our struggles, in spite of our failures, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of all our needs, in spite of all of our mistakes, all of our sin, God is for us. And the amazing thing, Paul says here, is we don't have to rely on some 
on some, uh, you know, hopeful notion. We don't have to rely on some warm and fuzzy feeling uh, to demonstrate that to us. We have the ultimate fact of the universe upon which to base that conclusion, and that is the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us. God gave us his son. That's how we know it. God is for us because God gave us his son. He proved it that way. That proof is mentioned in verse number 34 where we read how Christ died. He is also risen and is even at the right hand of God and who also makes intercession for us. We sang about that in the very first chorus this morning. God is for us. Proof of it's on the wall behind me. That cross. That cross. Gaither wrote that the empty cross is there to prove my Savior lives. It's true. But Paul says here that the empty cross is proof that God is for us. One day, one day Jacob was told that his favorite son Joseph was dead. He had been devoured by some wild animal. Of course, we've read the story. We know it was a lie. But that's what he was told. Joseph's jealous brothers had sold him to slave traders because they hated him. And they'd made up the a wild animal ate him story to cover their crime. But Jacob believed them. And for years, for years, he labored with the belief that his favorite son was dead. And then one day, the same brothers who had told him that story came to him and said that their, his second favorite son was being summoned to court and he might lose him as well. And you know, Jacob's response in all of this, I always think is classic. He said in Genesis chapter 42 and verse number 6, he said, all these things are against me. And I've felt that way sometimes. Have you ever felt that way? All these things are against me. But you know what? Paul's question here reminds us no matter how we feel, God is for us. And he proved it by this tangible fact that we can see and understand that Christ died for us. He didn't just say it. He didn't just say he loved us. He proved it with that cross and with that death of his son. God is for I'm reminded of Beth's favorite verse. Seems to fit nearly everywhere, but it certainly fits here. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. God is for us. You know, if you read the news these days, and I'm like my sister, I can hardly stand to read it anymore. I'll use the word vomit too. It makes me want to vomit, usually, when I read the news. And you know, it could seem like everybody and everything is against Christians these days. Just days... Just days ago, a completely insane man in Oregon shot up a small college. Witnesses say that he walked up to people and asked them what they believed, asked them their religion. If they said Christian, he shot them. Stories have circulated recently of ISIS terrorists in Iraq going door to door, asking people their religion. If they say Christian, they ask the children, what is your religion? And if the children say Christian, they behead the children in front of the parents and leave the parents there. I don't, I don't know the validity of that. I received an email uh, from a missionary who was in that area who was describing that. Christians worldwide are being targeted, aren't they? Targeted financially, targeted professionally, targeted personally, targeted emotionally. Here in America... Our government leaders who placed their hands on a Christian Bible one day and swore an oath to the God who wrote it would seem most of the time to be complicit in that attack against Christianity. And I know it's not something that ought to surprise us, for we read often in Scripture of the fact that we're in a spiritual battle. We read it all the time. 
We're told that we have three great enemies that are against us as Christians, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that devil, Satan, is actively at war against us. First Peter chapter 5 says, be, be sober, be, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 that we should put on the whole armor of God, that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And we're living in the evil day and having done all to stand. Sometimes we wonder, is there anything? Is there anybody we can trust that will not let us down? So many people trust money. Money will let you down. So many people trust friends. All of us who've had friends very long know that friends can let us down. Many people trust family. And family can let you down. Today, it seems like everybody trusts science. Science can let you down. Eventually, all such disappoint. Ah, but, but, but now let's go back. Let's consider once again. Let's consider the question. Think of the question that he said, if God is for us, who, who can possibly be against us? What a wonderful truth there is in those four little words, God is for us. God is for us. I want you to notice this is one of those places where Paul uses the word if, but he's not using it to imply some doubt. He's using it rather as an absolute certainty. Sometimes if means since. You know that, right? We could read this and it would be absolutely accurate to say, since God is for us, who can be against us? And question, there's the question, but the answer is, as we already said, nobody. Nobody. The psalmist said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 56, verse 11, in God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 3 and verse number 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. If God is for us, who can be against us? So, you feel like shouting yet? Are you getting close? Let's look at the second question. Second question in verses 33 and 34. Who can accuse us? Who can accuse us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? I can collapse a couple of verses here. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this one because it kind of falls naturally out of the first. If God is for us, who can be against us? Therefore, if God is for us, who could possibly bring an accusation against us? It kind of falls out of that. In what court could a charge ever be brought? Before what judge would a trial ever be held? Who could accuse us? It helps me to grasp the power of Paul's argument in these, these two verses, verses 33 and 34, if I read them a little bit differently. You need to read them all as questions. Every sentence in those verses as questions. Uh, Harry Ironside said this. He said, the next two verses should probably all be thrown into a question form, as in several critical translations. He said, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Shall God, who justifieth? Who shall condemn? Shall Christ, who died? Yea, rather, who is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He says there's no possible answer. Every voice is silenced. Every accusation is hushed. Our standing in Christ is complete, and our justification is unchangeable. Chuck Swindoll says, any charge brought against us will not stand up in court because our debt for sin has been paid in full. We are 
unimpeachable. We are and forever will be considered just before the judge of heaven. Who's going to accuse us? Who's going to accuse us? And by the way, if you're looking for a verse that succinctly describes the Savior and what he's done, look at those verses. It's, it's a pretty cool picture there. Matter of fact, I, as, I, as, we, as we sang that first song this morning, that, uh, that first chorus that we sing so often, I wondered if maybe they drew it from these passages a little bit. It talks here about Christ, how Christ died, he rose, he ascended, he sat down, and he currently intercedes. It's just a good picture. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer is nobody can. Because God is the judge, and he has already ruled in our favor. Case dismissed. Who is he who condemns? And the answer is nobody can. For Christ has already dealt with and paid for every sin that we would ever, ever commit, past, present, or future, and there's nothing left to condemn. Who can accuse us? Feel like shouting yet? One more. Look at verse number 35. What can separate us? What can separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Can anything separate the saved from the Savior? Is there some sin I might commit that would separate me from the love of God? Is there some trial we might face? Some hardship we might uh, undergo that might break us? Some enemy that might drag us away? Who or what can separate the Christian from the love of Christ? Of course, the answer is the same as the other questions. No one. No thing. I want to list a couple of things and go through the list that that Paul presents here. But first, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that he speaks of trouble here. He speaks of trouble. This whole list is a bunch of troubles. And he quotes from Psalm chapter 44 and verse 22. And he's reminding us there that trouble is a common experience for believers. And it has been from the beginning. And it will be until Jesus comes again. But he goes on to say these troubles won't separate us from his love. Even if they are realities in our life now, they won't separate us from His love. Trouble comes. We're warned to expect it. We should not be surprised by it. We should take a cue from our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who seldom seem to pray for deliverance from it, but rather for faithfulness through it. Trouble comes. He had discussed that truth in Romans chapter 5, and you can go back and look at that if you want to. When he talked about the fact that God often uses those things in our lives for good. Some of us attended the Voice of the Martyrs Conference a while back down in Columbus. And there was a fellow, a fellow there by the name of Robert Brock. I'm trying to get him to come and speak here if we can get our schedules worked out together. But he said something that I wrote down in the margin of my Bible and I just thought it was great. He said, God will not protect you from that which will perfect you. Yeah, it's true. Troubles come. Troubles come. So that's one truth that Paul says here. But the very next truth is that trouble can't win. It can't defeat you. It can't separate you from Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul asks in chapter 8 and verse 35. That word separate there is interesting. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when it's talking about the marital relationship. It's a picture of divorce. Who can divorce us from this relationship we have? With Jesus Christ? And the answer is nobody. How can we possibly ever be separated from the love of Christ? Now, he's talking about Christ's love for us there, not our love for him. I know, as our sister said, there have been many times in my life where my love for Christ has not been what it ought to be, but his love for me has never waned. Hmm. Ever. Paul said, I am persuaded 
that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dying. Dying will not separate us from his love. It just ushers us into his presence. And nothing in life here can separate us from his love because he's already told us that he is with us always, through it, every moment of this life. Angels don't want to separate us from him. They stand in awe of what we have and amazed at what Christ has done for us. And principalities and powers, that's referring to Satan and his demons and his dominion. Well, they've been defeated. They can't separate us from them, even if they want to. Nothing that currently exists can separate us from Him. And nothing that we might worry about in the future can separate us from Him. Nothing that is in heaven, nothing that is in hell can separate us from Him. Nothing in all of this created universe can separate us from Him. Actually, according to verse number 37, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. I'm going to stop for a minute until Andy stops. That was, that was great timing, Connie. I'm sorry. I'm sure the Lord's using that somehow in the middle of this, uh, such an important passage. From now on, Connie's phone will be confiscated at the door. Are we done? Was it important? Was it important? All right. I heard a preacher one time stand up before a service, and he said, Everybody turn your cell phones off. We're here to hear from God. There's no, he's not going to be calling on the phone. Verse 37, we are more than conquerors, he says, in all these things. In other words, we prevail completely. In other words, we have complete triumph. Here's what Wearsby says about this. I love this. He says, we are super conquerors. And by the way, some commentators believe that Paul actually coined a phrase here. He took two Greek words and piled them together that had not been used this way before. Super conquerors through Jesus Christ. He gives us victory and more victory. We need not fear life or death, things present or things to come, because Jesus Christ loves us and gives us the victory. This is not a promise with conditions attached. If you do this, God will do that. This security in Christ is an established fact, and we can claim it for ourselves because we are in Christ. Nothing can separate you from His love. Believe it and rejoice in it. End quote. Boyce says, All Christians can be assured that His love for us will never be shaken, weaken, vary, fluctuate, or change. On the contrary, believers know that the love of God in Christ is the greatest reality in the universe. It is the strongest, most steady, firm, unbending, solid, substantial, constant, uniform, dependable thing of all. Amen. Who can separate us? Despite all these things, Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What? A glorious...
passage of Scripture. What an amazing truth. How do we as Christians not bow in absolute adoration and awe to the one who has made this true of us? Do you see it, Christian? This is true of you. Do you get it? Do you get it? Who can be against us who are in Christ? Nobody. Who can accuse us who are in Christ? Nobody. Who or what can separate us who are in Christ from him? No one and no thing. Feel like shouting yet, Christian? 